Yeah. Fun yeah. fact, I did two years of chemical engineering. Oh, why did you so change? So you're not like by yourself. That's good. Oh, why did I? I hated it after this. <laughs> 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 Engineering Dads, my name is Sean. Sorry, I don't know why I still did the introduction. Um, so I'm here with my co-host, uh, James. We are missing one of our three amigos, aren't we? Yeah, Jeremy? I'm missing him wow, very wow. much, but I'm <laughs> very glad to be joined by two two guests today. Yep, so we would like to introduce Sarah and Anne. Hello, everyone. So- Hello. G'day, g'day, g'day. <laughs> Good. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank welcome you. to our channel. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. And ever since I did this podcast, I've been trying to get, I've been trying to find a time to get both of you on it because I've always wanted you both on. You're great personalities. Thank you. Um, and we are all more or less in the same electrical, Australian electrical industry. Um, yes. And we've been mates for what? How long have we been mates for? I feel like I've been mates with both of you since like 2017, second year uni. Yeah, it's been I a think, while. Yeah, I think first year uni for you, for. Me and you, Sean. Yeah. Which, I think, yes, yeah, that's I right. It was a physics class. Year. It was I just very vividly remember the first time in physics lab yes. when I'm trying to find a group and you're like, you're with me. <laughs> <laughs> and we all went to the same, we all went to the same uni here. Yeah. I don't know anyone here besides Sean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We it's all a went big to, uni. We all went to UNSW. The three of us, so when I say three, I'm talking about Sarah and Anne, we all went to Renewable Energy Engineering, which was woohoo, good engineering at the time, uh, James Chemical Engineering, but all went to UNSW, which was... A pretty good uni. Yeah. Fun yeah. fact, I did two years of chemical engineering. Oh, why did you so change? So you're not like by yourself. That's good. Oh, why did I? I hated it after this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short answer. I hated the first year of getting abused by professors and lecturers. Sean knows exactly who I We, we all of. had a very specific... Huh? No. <laughs> I just remember there was a French one, in, yeah. like a French professor. Is that going to be bleeped out? <laughs> we can do that, yeah. No one can go back and look at that sound. It's fine, yeah. I mean, we probably... Like sh- we two sh- minutes into this podcast <laughs> and I've already done Patty, just edit this out done. when you next get to edit this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a very Thanks specific so well. chemistry lecturer who was... Uh, very, how would we say, uh, sure of himself? Uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> very pro hydrogen. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah very, he was actually. Oh, yeah, he was, he was definitely ahead of the time pro hydrogen. Yeah. And that's, I guess, one of the things I probably want to talk today. So we have three experts, I would say experts, subject mm. matter experts on the electrical industry in this field. Very in loose this definition. Very of loose. Very loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I really want to talk about the electrical industry, both from your perspectives and like things in the market. And I'm going to throw things at you, okay? Yeah. Um, so what are we thinking about the new policy coming out with Labor? The 43% that's just been legislated in the government, do we think that's realistic? Look, I don't... This is my personal opinion. That's good. If this is meant to address climate change, I think it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But it's nowhere near enough. Mm-hmm. Um because like we need a much much more rapid pace yeah. of decarbonization and the way that we're going to do that is a lot of money into um transmission networks mm-hmm. a lot more money into generation and a lot more money into storage so we know the solution yeah and this target i think is a good step as i said there's been like a decade of climate wars um oh yeah but i think the states uh kind of doing way more anyway so yeah i'm really optimistic and hopeful but it's not because of labor's 
Yeah, exactly. Target. Well, that's what I kind of mentioned in our previous podcast with the the, the boys was um, that in terms of like state targets, we're already doing it. All I'm really missing is federal coordination. Just a little bit of that policy from the top down is the last step that we're missing. So when you say federal coordination, are you talking about the federal government literally bringing the states together and holding them all accountable? Well, just even having a conversation, example being is there's a council where representatives from the federal and state governments come together and they talk about different things. And there was like the COAG? No. It used to be the called the COAG Energy Council, mm-hmm. but now it's called something else yeah um but basically it's where all the energy ministers and they're um the heads of departments of those different um energy departments all get together um and also there will be the heads of the market bodies so uh amo the aer and the amc heads are there um and also energy consumers australia Mm. which is um a um, federally initiated like not-for-profit um, consumer advocacy group and they all talk about policy and how to so for example so they, um, are these are these the retailers or the the producers of energy these are government like yeah. and not for profit so there's no okay industry there so are, there's in, no yeah. buying or selling of energy from these people they just sort of enforce Setting policy yeah. and yeah. targets and direction so it's more of a check of how are you guys doing are you on the right track? Well, it's it's a way to coordinate everyone's different actions because as so we... So, for example, in the yeah. energy crisis, right, and there was yeah. like all these gas problems, electricity problems, they would have meetings on how to coordinate that response and make sure that, you know, Queensland gas is flowing south, for example, in the middle of winter mm. instead of it going offshore. Yeah. And like as an example for the people in the Australian sector, if you looked at how our health response was, it was very much driven by the states, the state... Uh, health minister would control the decisions for that specific area and region and then the federal would have advice on it and they're like that communication that's the exact same for energy a lot of the powers within the states the problem that i saw was in the federal level when the previous government was in they didn't have a meeting for like two and a half three years when realistically you're supposed to have one every six months so they just did not talk so everyone was the blind leading the blind and the states went we're going to do stuff anyways Either we talk about and build the right transmission and talk to each other and figure out what we're going to do, or we just do it ourselves and effectively do it themselves. So I guess by some sort of extension, the state's focus within the country, is my country meeting that target? Whereas the federal sort of communicate that sort of out of the country in a way when they go to those climate summits and um, say, this is what my country's doing. That's, that's what their responsibility falls on. Um, not so much. I would imagine it's like different departments of a company and then you've got one CEO who's telling the, the oops, sorry, um, the d- departments, this is the direction we're heading towards. But right. the departments do their own thing. It's the department thing kind of thing. So you've mm. got, you've got different levels of power being allocated, but the, the federal point is the, the overall direction and the states do the work. I guess it's the difference between a leader and a manager to a degree, a bit of a loose definition there. But the fact that we didn't see that meeting for years, even though people were calling for it, they were desperately asking, hey, we want to do this. We want to just have a conversation. And they still didn't get it from the previous government. It was really a little disappointing. Yeah, in my personal opinion, the new government has been an excellent first step in mm. bringing more people together and Getting the conversation going, yeah. yeah. Because I think... You know, as engineers, we're quite solution-orientated people. And yep. some some of us more than others are really good at, you know, just getting something done on our own. But the problem with or, or the, the uniqueness about electricity and energy is that it's like 
the same spinny things all the way up in cans affect mm-hmm. like are connected to Adelaide are connected to um, Melbourne like it's all interconnected we the, elect- the electrons don't matter don't care yeah um, what state you're in so you need that coordinated response and it's like at every single level the generators the transmission networks government consumers um, even like on the distribution network side like you know electricians and Everyone needs to be on the same page and, like, it's so hard. It's so, so difficult. It's also, it's also who's got the most money in their pocket, right? Like, you can say, I have this amazing plan, I have the amazing solution, but the question comes back down to, is it going to make me money? And if you can't convince yeah. someone it's going to make them money, well, then how do you get them on board? Well, and see, that's the thing, right? Like, the electricity industry in Australia was started as like a public utility, public vertically integrated utility. The New South Wales Electricity Commission controlled all the generation, all the transmission, all the distribution. Your bill, if you lived in a household, would come from the New South Wales Electricity Commission, Mm. which was owned by the New South Wales government. And then in the 90s, there was this huge push for liberalisation of markets. And they're like, you know Mm. what, this is really inefficient. The New South Wales Electricity Commission became so good at building coal plants. They just like kept busting them out yeah, it was year like, after year. They, they, it was like the same team that just go around, go every two years, up new site, let's do it. Same team, just dream team, go in and go out. And, and that, that gets expensive because they, yeah. they, they messed up well, the electricity demand profile. So they're like, oh yeah, it's going to keep growing. Yeah. It's going to get bigger and bigger. Well, we yeah. need more and more and more. And then they overbuilt. Because well, they're the producing way- efficient electricity and making a lot of money out of it. It's a perfect combination. Well, well, I don't think at that point it was about money. At that no. point it was, let's so just supply. get... Well, when you're looking at such a big interconnected system like that and you've got one utility doing all the work, yeah. it actually works beautifully because you've got visibility over every single little component. You can make them all work together really well. Mm. Their problem wasn't um, like they were actually doing engineering to make something work really well. Whereas I feel like now engineering is more about how can we do this for the lowest cost? And mm. that's not the yes. same thing. Unfortunately, optimization yeah. is what was the whole idea behind the market. And Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if it's like we're going through huge transition again yeah. and the fact that it's all kind of split up is mm. making it so much more difficult i feel like to yeah to get like i think there's pros and cons done. to it i think the idea of building coal stations quickly is because the way the new south wales government at the time looked at it everything's nail everything's i'm going to use my hammer and it just kept hitting coal because it's the one thing they know really well to do and then after a while i was like maybe coal isn't always the solution let's make it least cost make it more efficient and for like 10 years there, I reckon it was not bad. I think it was pretty good. Coal was online. New generators were coming online. Price was coming. Like, was this in the early 2000s? Early 2000s, yeah. It was okay. The problem is it's now that the coal's coming offline. And because it's um, stick policy, not carrot, we need the prices to skyrocket before generation comes online. When realistically, we need the generation coming online as demand grows, which is so difficult to do when it's a market. Because you got to, you need the price to go up for have people you, to move away. Or have you guys switching. heard about um, the new El Tessa process? Have you guys talked about that yet? No, no, we have not. I haven't heard of that one. So, yet. I someone explained this to me. I, I never got it. The whole New South Wales Energy Roadmap, mm. whatever. 
I didn't get it and I didn't understand how cool it was until someone explained it to me like a five-year-old and I was like, yes, this is really, really cool. So basically what New South Wales has been doing is nothing for a very, very, very long time. Okay? <laughs> what an anticlimax. No, 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 no. I'm, no, no, no. I'm going to get there. Yeah. We're getting there. So it's like there's QRET, there's VRET. South Australia has yeah. so renewable energy policies. So different programs from different states and, for their targets. And normally what they've been doing, like for example, in Victoria, they did a reverse auction process where they said mm-hmm. we're going to fund X amount of megawatts of new generation who can, and then they pick the lowest bidder. We can mm. make it at, you know, $50 a megawatt hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there was like Canberra, again, ACT have a different model for renewable energy. And there are inherent problems with those types of projects. Mm. Um, A, um, a lot of these projects were not put in optimal parts of the network. So rhombus of of regret. regret. There it is. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And then there's other problems like, um, yeah, so when that happens – It's also not financially the best either. I can't remember why. But anyways, New South Wales is sitting back on their laurels and they're looking around at their uh, inferior state cousins (laughs) thinking, what is going on? So they've come up with a New South Wales... The Liberal government um, under Matt Keane hired a... Um, Japanese game theory expert. What? <laughs> yes. This is oh, how, I haven't heard this. This is really fucking cool. They hired a Japanese game theory expert to design the perfect scheme of like encouraging renewable energy development. Yeah. So the first part of the scheme is to make sure you've got renewable energy zones, right? So this is what they'd say is if you come to this part of the network, yeah. so like I think there's one in the Hunter New England you region. So there's Central West Arana and New West England Arana. are the big ones now. So they're saying that, you know, we've we've done the maths and if this this part of New South Wales has great um, renewable resource. Yep. And we're gonna build a transmission corridor for this. So you're not gonna get a lot of the um, uh, traffic on the network. Your yeah. energy can go straight so to these, the CBD. These renewable energy zones, are you talking about having a lot of renewable generation and just popping that into the grid? Yeah. yeah. So it's all centralised in certain chunks and then you can manage it as kind of one one generator effectively. Yeah. A lot of wind and solar, but you just imagine it's one wind and one solar farm kind of thing. Whereas uh, right now it's distributed all over the market. It plugs in whenever. Yeah. So because so, if you think about it, right, it's the same with coal plants. We've got a lot of coal plants where there are mines, coal mines. Mm. And they were like, well, that, that's why they're all kind of bunched up yeah, close Latrobe together. Yeah, Valley, Hunter Valley. Yeah. Yeah. How so, does that, yeah. How does that work on the national energy market though when you're talking about all the energy now is sort of decentralized where you can see everything that's going on. When you move to a more centralized space, can you... Do you still have that same level of visibility, I suppose? Oh, 100%. Well, the visibility is not the problem. The problem yeah. is, right, a network is... Like you're a water engineer, you kind of understand the the shape of the pipe affects how much water can flow through it. Yeah, I always think when I think of electricity, I always think how can I bring this analogies to water, and yeah. it works every time because like so. So if you think yeah. about it, the between the Hunter Valley and, and the Sydney CBD, there's just like a big fuck off pipe that can have like <laughs> heaps of water going through it, and so there's never any constraints on that part of the network for all that energy to flow into the CBD, the main load center. It's just flowing in by gravity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, like, the other parts of the state where land is really cheap and there's a lot of sun and wind are parts of the network where you've got, like, a PVC pipe that's, like, <laughs> the size two, of a glass. Yeah, two yeah. inches wide. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, okay. you're trying to dump a water tower right. on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going uphill. There's There's no pump to get it yeah. back up like so they're connecting into those parts of the network and their energy can't get to where the load is right okay so even though they're really really cheap 
that you're not actually yeah. getting those megawatts in. So what the New South Wales government did is saying, we're going to fix the pipes. This part of New South Wales has excellent um, renewable energy resources and the land is cheap enough that developers will want to want to go there. We're going to build the transmission to get that energy to where it needs to go. So is it just like the size of the transmission network in that Correct. area or is it like the quality mm. of the cables they're using as well? The yeah. same thing, right? Like yeah. if you've got a bigger... It's literally just a thicker voltage. cable. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah. it's like literally the pipe analogy is perfect because they need a bigger pipe. They need less bends in that pipe. It needs to be more straight and it needs to be pumped efficiently. Hell mm. yeah. I understand that. Yeah. yeah. So this is the, that's the first part of the plan. And then what the second part of the plan is they set a megawatt target. I think it's like nine gig of generation and two gig of storage or something. Yeah. Um, that's how much they're going to tender out. So this is the tender process, right? The government... New South Wales government puts out the LTES, a long-term energy something, something. It uh, doesn't matter. That's what the SS stands for. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> something after that. <laughs> they go, okay, how much the developer comes and says, I, you, you come up to me, you're a developer. Yep. James says to me, I'm going to um, sell you energy at $25 a megawatt hour. And this is what it looks like. Right, and then Sean comes up to me and says, "I'm going to do you know a 50 megawatt plant for 20 dollars a megawatt hour." And Liz comes up to me and says something completely different. And then I look, I can award all of you guys a contract, or I could award only one. What the decision? It's not based solely on money. You're not going for the cheapest mm, bidder. Sure. You're going for something. So maybe you've got like a battery somewhere, and your like your profile, your daily profile is going to look different yeah. to to Sean's one. Or maybe you're coming in so cheap, it just makes sense. So then I award you guys a contract and the way that this contract works is that every two years you get to make a decision as the operator of that farm of whether you're going to exercise that contract in the next two years. Okay. So if, for example, you've got an energy crisis and electricity market prices are going to, their forecast for the next two years to be absolutely bonkers, like $1,000 a megawatt hour or whatever. Yeah. Imagine a coal station just blew up and there's yeah. this massive shortfall. Yeah. Or like just a really cold winter. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's been happening quite a fair bit actually. I suppose like a fair analogy yeah. to that is like you got a farm, your farm gets flooded, so you need to increase the price of lettuce. Oh, that actually happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? You would look at that forecast and go, you know what? I can get $1,000 in the market. Why would I exercise my contract? So that mm. for those two years, you're playing solely in the market. Yeah. Then the next two years comes around. Everyone's got solar. It, prices are rock bottom. They're hitting the floor all the time. You go, I would like to exercise my contract, please. And a guarantee reliable income, right? Yes. And it that means that, and then you do that process every two years for twenty years. Yeah, and, and banks would froth that. This yeah. the, the it's a great incentive that. for developers as well. Yeah. Like that's a huge risk. Yeah, like taking that volatility out of the market, and like yeah. if they want to, like you take away all the low end risk, and you like incentivize all the high end risk. Right, so yeah. it's to ensure that developers can get funding yeah. for their projects, and it doesn't mean as well that you can't have like tertiary contracts on top of that secondary yeah. and tertiary contract. So you can still under this contract, like, you know, Building contract a with a contract LTSR. with a load or something. Yeah. 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 And so I just, when someone explained that to me, I'm like, that is genius. Because, <laughs> because to me, this makes so much sense because banks would froth this. Cause you would say, look at base, here's my plant. Here's how much I'm going to generate based on the resource. I've done the due diligence. The government is guaranteeing this amount. Yep. If I, if I get less than that, I get, I get top up. 
if the mark goes shit, I get heaps more. Yes. So this is literally the lowest I'll ever get. They go, oh my God, the risk on this is nothing. Here you go. Here's $100 million, go build a solar farm. And the thing as well is the contracts are meant to be awarded out on the basis that the it'll be the cheapest possible solution for the New South Wales energy consumer. Mm. So do you get awarded a contract before you go into design and construct then for that? that you say, this you is my plan. You do it in between design and construction. So you design the, the plant, you have the whole mapping of it, you then go to a consultancy and you go, okay, how much is this going to generate? Yeah. Where will it plug in? So what are the constraints? And then you offer that and then they say yes or no and then it goes to construction. There's still a significant level of risk in that then because if you're in the middle of the design and construct, and your plant can't expedite what it says it will, we've officially bonked your two-year contract, so to speak, because you haven't been able to deliver on what you've promised. To me, if something goes wrong in those two years, well, there's still a level of risk involved in that. I mean, there is, but like the level of due diligence, I mean, like to do a wind farm analysis, right? And we did a wind farm analysis back at uni. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> great course. Um, but we had to look at seven years of wind data. Seven years was like the minimum you need to look at. So you have a very good understanding of what is a good year, a bad year, and an average year. Yeah. And so you base it off like the chance that it's going to be a really bad year for a long time. And that's unlikely. So like the level of data that they go through that people say, oh, but wind doesn't always blow. No, you don't build wind farms where it doesn't blow. You build them where on average it blows really well. Of course, yeah. So like the due diligence that you do on this stuff and the banks are always on the conservative side. The risk there is still really low. They usually like conservative approaches to like modeling and data and financials. Um, if they're getting on the conservative side, that is the lowest generation. So the idea of risk being there is actually really minimal. Um, before it it's, was a it's, lot more. It's risk on the company, yeah. not the not the greater picture, yeah. so to yeah. speak. I think the initial risk with banks, they didn't like the idea of if you built in a bad shitty place, like a PVC pipe analogy, that you're just going to get 60% of your stuff cut. That was their concern. Rhombus of regret is a great one. Because even VRET now, they look at criteria. So Victoria, when they... Oh, my God, I keep doing that. Victoria, when they do it, they Who's say... The pro? I know, I know. <laughs> How many podcasts have we done, James? Rule number one. Yeah, yeah. Don't touch <laughs> Don't touch the You're just going to sit back and relax. I know. I'm just getting... I just the idea of talking so to other people from the energy market is getting me excited. Um, but Victoria, even now, they go, all right, how much are you going to do it for? Okay, but how much, where are you connecting into? Like that is their big yeah. thing that they're looking at exactly. now. Yeah, and it's a massive thing that's looking in, in the water industry as well. It's yeah, like, right. Mm. Not how good your plant is or how good your you can pump water. Where the fuck are you pumping that water to? And how yeah. can you do it? Yeah, honestly. Yeah, it's, It seems really like basic actually, but it wasn't it's, for it's a not, long time. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's because like we overbuilt in the 80s and we haven't had to build new projects in such a long time. I think registrations mm. of new plant went from like, you know, one or two a year to like 200 a year. Yeah. Right? So you can imagine like there are people who are learning how to do this in every part of like, you know what I mean? Like from mm. the connection side to the proponents to the banks, like everyone's new to this. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed, and this is something I read in the EC report a few weeks, they got released back. Um, you guys might not have read it, but it was, it was, a very grave warning. So the issue is the electrical statement of opportunities. Um, and it gives a forecast for how much energy we have and demand. And they just said, we're fucked. Effectively, that report just says, we're so screwed. Um, we <laughs> have all these uh, generators that said they might come online. We need you online yesterday. Yeah. Please process. They're, like, they're, they're really emphasizing that push. Like, get the fuck online. Because if not, states burn. 
Like they, they were really grave in that report. It's like six pages on it, like just of how bad that forecast looks. Do they look into why they're not online? Like, well, I'd ima- like I'd imagine surely, yeah, projects get delayed. I mean, yeah. I did a few years in buildings and I feel like a lot of it also translates to energy projects. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. you're like, yeah, this building should have been ready yesterday. Anything but, uh, with infrastructure always yeah. will have delays. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I just wonder do they look into reasons why there's a lot of pushback is it kind of well, like I, can you pinpoint like okay maybe we can focus on this and try and facilitate that so you I, know. I think a lot of these projects were just on the borderline so they're like look we're ready to go we can install within a day oh within two years for renewables let's be honest um but right now the banks aren't giving us enough money to the risk is too high so we just need a little bit of push just a bit of agreement that the risk is low which i think the new policy of just even have a regulated target is good. And then the banks would go, okay, dropping the risk by 2% off your pop. And that's what I think all they're waiting for. But they had like, so uh, AMO have this like register of generators online and people who want to build a generator. And they said that that big column of like generators who want to build, we need you in the other column now. Uh, Yeah, like they're just, um, it was just a, they're just really grave in terms of that response. They said, like, we'll breach the reliability constraint, the reliability standard in all states by 2027. Like, really near term. So it's really quite scary. But Why is 2027 the magic number? I swear that's the same as they want to stop producing ICE vehicles. Uh, it's the same there's, with... There's a few of them. The ICE vehicles, I think it's more like 2030, 2035 for the ICE vehicles. Well, 2030, they want to have ICE ve- all What's ICE vehicles ICE on the vehicle? road. Internal combustion engine versus electric vehicles, which is like the big debate at the moment. I oh. have opinions about oh, <laughs> oh, See, I'm very pro-EV, <laughs> so this is the perfect time to bring it up, especially since I haven't checked with you this beforehand, so I have no idea what I'm walking into. <laughs> Come on. Endless hey, Sarah, give me... <laughs> give me I love this EV. tangent we've got on now. Yeah. I think EVs are, like, if we're talking about climate crisis, right, Mm. and having to fix Mm -hmm. the climate crisis, we need to completely change the way we live. Yeah. And just switching from ICE vehicles to EVs are not going to change, like, our... There's not going to solve any problems. So far, agreed. 100%, yeah. Okay, we need need to make public transit more available. Mm -hmm. We need to make cities more walkable. We need to make it walkable for people of different body abilities and different Mm. ages if you're a four-year-old or a 90-year-old you should be able to walk on the street you should be able to ride your bike and 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 not feel scared and make everything more affordable too like an ev is not cheap no i want one so bad sorry sorry right now they're not cheap but neither was the first iphone when it came out and everyone has one mate Uh, yeah but that's the okay this this is my beef right so (laughs) like okay you would you rather be sitting in traffic yeah. For the whole day, trying to get from one part of the city to the other. Or, like, everyone... You, have you guys been to Amsterdam or the Netherlands? Or going through, going yeah. soon, going yeah. soon. Why are those cities so enjoyable? Well, I mean, they had better forward planning. Australia was... But, okay, but no, no, no. You're yeah. not answering my question. Sorry. Why are they enjoyable? Um, to be in, to in be Amsterdam? around. Amsterdam, you got coffee... Sh- I mean, yes, yeah, sorry, <laughs> different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other one we do, sorry. <laughs> it's because you can walk around. You can get on your bike. You can be outside. You can mm. go do things. Like, Sydney is so... It, it's got the same problem as a lot of cities around the world where it's like very unfriendly to people who are not in a car. Same with yeah. Melbourne. It's like you've got your CBD, then you've got your suburbs. Like it's, are you yeah. in the suburbs or the, or, the, or the urban area? And it's always that distance yeah. that is a big barrier. Like I, 
I'm really, really worried. In 2019, Western Sydney was the hottest place on earth. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, yeah. the, there's no cl- tree club cover. Um, yeah, which is suburbs. a massive like reduction. To They're f- all it's the also a valley. Blacks. It's also a massive it's a valley, valley too. There's so anything that goes in gets trapped. You like, can't walk shit. anywhere. Public transit in Western Sydney is awful. Like yeah. there are all these things that that like it make people beholden to cars, mm. which are as you pointed out, kind of expensive. Yeah, and so I think that EVs. Are not gonna. They're gonna be part of the solution. I agree that every single new vehicle yes. should be an EV. To, to be, yeah. I just think there should be much, much less. Sorry, fewer I, EVs. Yeah, okay, like on the road. I think. Stop. I think we're both arguing the same point. Okay, yeah, I I, um, I totally agree. I yeah. think the idea of heavy usage of cars and people say, "Oh, I can't switch to EVs." They don't go seven hundred kilometers. How often do you drive seven hundred kilometers <laughs> in one trip? Fuck yeah, off. that's like a one. Or one there's or there's trip. the hey, do you know when you charge your EV, it's from a coal plant? So like you're technically not oh, solving yeah, the problem. Don't give me that. Just like, we we've done the math that it's actually better to charge with the current grid. By the way, the current grid, even as we record this podcast, is a rolling average of thirty three percent renewables. Thirty three percent of your power coming through your cables right now is renewables. No one cares about that no one talks about it but it's all renewables but even if you even if you do even if you do on average charge a car with the grid that is still less emissions per kilometer than a normal um internal combustion engine vehicle um but yeah sorry to cut you off but what really frustrates me as well is like okay like looking at a target for evs Mm. great all good i'm all for it nothing against evs or you know but it all fits, like, it's all one small piece of a much bigger puzzle, right? But it's always spoken about so independently. Like, yeah. when you talk about EVs, right, you need infrastructure for EVs. Yep. Not just infrastructure. You know, we'll build, we're building homes. We're building, you know, offices, all those things. Yeah. There are buildings that are being built right now. And, you know, you're building car parks and there's still not an option for you to plug in an EV and charge it. That's why but why is, like, why is that? Like, that's so ridiculous. If you want to talk about a target of like, this is what we want to achieve in terms of EVs and like, this is what we want it to look like. This all fits in as part of like urban planning and you can't just isolate EVs you from can't, you can't just say, the oh, built yeah, environment, yeah. you know, from like, it all kind of fits in together. Yeah, exactly. You can't just say, yeah, let's put charging stations in car parks. That's going to solve the problem. It's like, you need to actually build those car parks efficiently and, and needs thing, to be energy the, safe. The thing is the basic level two charging. So charging between 7 to 11.5 kilowatts, which is the normal charger you get with the char, the car, costs maybe $800 to install. Both the material and installation, they are incredibly cheap. They're slower, sure, but you charge your phone overnight every single day. You can charge your car the same way. You're not driving it 99% of the time. They're not that expensive, which really pisses me off. And I feel like, you know, you know, they put a target for 2030. Come to 2030 mm. being like, look how expensive it is it is to retrofit all these existing buildings yeah. or like all this existing infrastructure to accommodate for EVs. EVs oh. are the problem. And it's like, no, they, it is yeah. not. Like, it's urban. It's just like some planning ahead of time. Do that, though. It's just, yeah. it's, it's a solution yeah. that fits into another solution. And unless we look at all these things holistically, the whole picture, yeah. the whole picture exactly, we're never, yeah. we're never going to get to a... I feel like our degree that we did, renewable energy engineering, is... Like, we're all energy nerds. Mm, We're all very passionate about it. I think everyone that did that course is. And that's something really, I think, unique because, you know, we did it 
Because we wanted to. At the time, there wasn't an industry really for it, or we didn't think that there was going to be a great job at the end. But we're like, we want to do this. <laughs> I did. Lucked out with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get missed out, baby. Just, I just remember <laughs> in like O week, I'm sitting in the hall and I'm like, all right, people who are doing mechanical this way, people doing chemical, people who are doing renewable energy and photovoltaics. I'm like. There's a fucking degree for that. Yeah, <laughs> we were the only one in Australia at the time. Yeah. Now look at it. I guess three universities in Australia but doing it. Oh. I think like to your point about how we need that big picture thinking, hmm. because of the decentralization of the electricity market, but also the kind of wild west that is buildings and, you know... The, the, we'll the get on that, that one in another podcast. Such a very accurate description. <laughs> also, like, you know, the fact that traffic engineers have just been doing the exact same thing. There's no innovation in yeah. that. And, like, mm. you know... Urban we should pla- make into a market. But... Oh, <laughs> <mate>. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is there's no... There's no clear one vision. Everyone mm. is just doing their own thing. And I think why we're in a really cool position is our ability to look at that all together and go this these all fit together and we need to move together in mm. one direction and yeah. improve um but no like that's very difficult to do yeah. I've, I've i've been getting a lot of um sort of advice from mentors like at work lately yeah. and because i've been feeling a little bit insecure about my technical abilities right as an engineer well, um, you're still very, very young, yeah, Sarah. I'm sure it'll yeah. come with time. We, I think we all get that fear that it's like, it's am I technically person. sound enough? But it'll come with experience. But the thing is, right, the advice that I overwhelmingly get from people who are much more older and experienced than me is that that doesn't matter. You can get technically sound engineers who can sit and run simulations or do the analysis, power flow studies, blah, blah, blah. You can't get someone who can do that to an acceptable level as well as communicate, as well mm. as synthesize those ideas, as well as it collaborate needs to be a with perfect, people. Perfect combination, right? But yeah. the thing is, I think that's a, all these technical kind of roles. We're very good at just, no, this is, this is the perfect way. This is the only way. This is the only way I'm going to do it, blah, blah, blah. When yeah. actually the skills that are required for this stage of the energy transition because the way everything's sort of set up is you need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to synthesize. You need to be able to... An all-rounded engineer. Is someone who can communicate and collaborate and be interdisciplinary and know a little bit about other things so that... And also bring people on board. Like I think this 100%. is that we saw this as a big issue. I hate to bring it up, but during the pandemic, when we first saw vaccines being rolled out, we had like we needed medical professionals talking about it. But like you said, there was that communication barrier there, yeah. and you had people who didn't know much about the topic talking about it. And as a result, a lot oh. of people were like, "No, sorry, that's not right." And like, there's what a lot of people who had about? no qualifications talking about it on social e- media. Exactly, and I think this links. It's it's, it's nothing new. Like we we need someone who has that perfect combination to be able to relay these concerns without information. When it comes to engineering, I think that's really where engineers sit, just in that that volume between understanding the topic and being able to translate it to a broader audience, which is what this podcast is about. Welcome to the Engineering Dads podcast. You can understand what we're talking about. James and I called ourselves Jacks because Jack of all trades, master of none, oftentimes better than a master master of of one. one. Yeah, so I think that was like, you were summarizing exactly what that mentality. How I summarized the renewable energy degree. (laughs) (laughs) What did you study? Everything. You know, one electrical course, two mechanical courses. Do you like biomass? I did a lot of that. Ask me one question about it. I uh, feel like yeah. an honorary mech bro, to be honest, with yeah. all the mechanical engineering. I, I was going to say a lech bro for me. Really? <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lecky. 
For sure. Oh, no I think way. I identify with mechanical as yeah. well. No, yeah. But no one says chemical. <laughs> <laughs> I just like making beer. <laughs> Do you guys like beer? <laughs> Maybe we all like beer. I think, uh, just to go back to Anne Liz's point there, um, the idea that in terms of the pictures as it comes together for emissions. So energy is the low-hanging fruit. 33% of our emissions comes from um, the energy sector. Trans- uh, transport is the third largest at 17%. So that's 50% of... What's the first... The second one? First. First is energy. So oh. first is energy. Second is stationary energy, so manufacturing, mining. Harder, harder one to move. Yeah. This is 20, my biggest 20%. issue, though. Yeah, i got a massive issue with the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and then the third one... Construction. And the third one being transport. So that's about 50% of our emissions. If we went electric vehicles and then pushed... Um, away from ICE vehicles and more into public transport and walking, that's 50% of emissions gone. That could be done very quickly. But what about planes and, and whatnot and like trains that are operating from, from the grid? Like, isn't that a massive part of it as well? There, there is if a the grid's part. green, then yeah. the trains issue sorted. Yep. But I'm talking about the current state, the do nothing yeah. approach. Like, isn't that why you'd consider it the third highest? As soon as we start going to the green grid, we see that drop. Planes are probably going to be still the biggest yeah. emissions. But they're also getting a lot better. I mean, even the new Dreamliners. They are still super intensive, but they're about 30% less per passenger than the like, uh, A380s, which were the most advanced at the time, like 10 years ago. They, they, the the fact of the matter is like, we're going to need to mm. like, reduce plane travel full stop. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, because, because of um, the Panini, the parallelogram, the panda bear, a lot more... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Pandemic for those who don't oh, know Sarah terminology. Panini, sorry. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Isn't it the same level number of syllables? Because of the panic of the disco. Okay. Um, <laughs> got that one. <laughs> a lot of business has moved online, right? Like yeah. in, but like in the grand old days, they used to fly you for like a yes. one day business meeting and stuff. Yeah. That needs to stop. You know what I mean? Like it's all not of necessary. that. It's not it's necessary. It's not necessary. Yeah. Do it online. And like there is like also travel overseas and stuff like Australians. <laughs> I love how you say this, but Sydney's about to open up a, a business airport to process 1.4 billion people a day. Yeah. They, they're expecting the same volume of traffic as Heathrow within 10 years or 15 years. Uh, do you believe that? Uh, well, that's what they've said. So I have to take it. Like I take it. At yeah, face but also value. they <laughs> sold that land for ten times what it was worth. So yeah, I know. <laughs> so I take everything they say with a little bit of a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so I want to go back to Labor's policy of what we pretty much started off with this podcast, the 43%, um, you know, emissions target. To me, that's not consistent with a 1.5 degree increase. That's been like, yeah, you know, pretty much is, proven. It's about 1.8, 1.9, uh, Yeah, what, during the election, I saw it was close to like a two degree increase, which mm. is still not acceptable. Whereas the Greens had some like 75%, which is to an extent unrealistic. But then you had the teals that came in that were like, well, no, 60% is probably the nice sweet spot where you can achieve. It's a bit more work to do. Um, I'm a being a massive chemical nerd, love the idea of, of hydrogen. Um, not so much nuclear, even though it's going back to my field because I don't know a lot about nuclear. So that's where I wanted to sort of to speculate on, I guess, with all of us here, is you guys talk a lot about solar and wind and hydro, and I don't know so much about that. Why isn't there more of a push for, for green hydrogen? And I've got to speculate that oh, it is green. There so- is heaps. Because well, I, I know there's a lot of exporting to different countries, which is all well and good. Australia is always has always been a commodity, ex- exporter, a commodity yeah. exporter, yeah. But why aren't we talking about building more centralized and decentralized places in Australia that we produce our own green hydrogen? Um, 
Well, I mean, it's expensive. Yeah, I think it's been proposed. The problem with it right now is economics. It's no one's really built these massive plants yet. Once they start building them, they'll come down in price. But I think modeling was recently suggested. I forgot who did it, but they said um, you need to run a hydrogen plant at about 80 to 90% if we build it now, and maybe 50% if we build it in 2032. Like really hard now, like the idea of that economic drop of scale. But the first mover has to come in. They have to have take the most amount of risk. But we're also seeing like big conglomerates like uh, Twiggy Forest and FFI. They're pushing that envelope and say, we're just going to do it anyways. And you guys can invest or non-invest and they're signing to invest. Did you guys see that FFI, so Fortescue Futures Industry, did a collaboration with Rick and Morty? No. Yeah, no. Yes. Well, you showed me. They had a, so yeah, yeah, right. So if I came up on my Facebook page of like, Rick and Morty need green hydrogen to defeat the giant evil robot. It was so weird, weird animation. Didn't even get the actors in. Just, just more Rick and Morty posted tagging FFI in it. Like it was clearly a marketed brand thing. But I, I, I kind of respect it. That's going after a different market than I would have expected for green hydrogen. Mm. And I mean, because like as 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 the chemical engineer. I look at this, we have everything we need to do. We have water and a lot of it to be able to produce green mm-hmm. hydrogen. We have the materials we need to do it. We have we the can electrolyzers do it on the ports there. for exporting as well. Um, we've got CCS to... I'm joking. I'm no, not we're not talking about CCS. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I don't, don't support that. So to me, it's just like, it's, it's almost like a no-brainer. It just seems like when we come to you guys, it's just like, no, stop. I need to well, we just, bring you we back to reality. We don't have one built yet, so we don't know how what the economics is. The same way about small-scale nuclear they're like, oh, it's the savior of the universe. We don't have a real one built. The ones that are built, all test facilities at universities, all they've sunk. One of them, the, the Russian one, like was on a boat and almost sunk. Um, but it was like four times the claimed cost. So it's the, it's the uncertainty. It's the uncertainty. I mean, yeah. we, we, we have a whole podcast on green hydrogen. So you can go back to listen to it if you're listening to this one right now. We mm. talk about all these things, but it doesn't seem like much will change in the next few years. I like. would, I would actually... I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw one in the next five years, a big one in the next five years. So not, I would be. Not, uh, a, not a commercial you want to make a bet? <laughs> yeah, all right. All right, $5. Yeah. Uh, I'll say something over 100 megawatts by 2028. Wait, $5 in five years' time money or $5 yeah, yeah. in today's uh, money? Yeah, and current inflation rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say so like $5. Me. <laughs> That's a risky bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 100 megawatts by 2028. Is, does that sound right? Yeah, I'm saying it's not going to happen. I reckon it will. All right, bets on. We'll come back in five years' time and be like, shit, got him. I just, I don't know. I, I honestly, I'm not that knowledgeable in this space. Mm. Like, I, I don't know much about hydrogen. But what I do know is that it actually doesn't, the, the places where we, like the current infrastructure is not right for producing hydrogen. Like you're saying it's Spot close on. to ports and stuff it isn't we need to build more stuff from my understanding and Mm. the second thing is is that like it's good for heavy industry so if you're gonna be steel mills or aluminium smelters or whatever like um it's really good for that Mm -hmm. but as soon as you try and export it hydrogen isn't like lng like the chemical makeup of it is if you wanted to get liquid hydrogen you have to get extremely low temperatures which already Increases oh sure, energy you'd, never, you'd yeah. never dare export mm. hydrogen then, in a gas form. Like you can export it in the form of ammonia, which is really yeah. simple to convert back to hydrogen or like um, hydrogen powder as well or metal hydrides, which is yep. my favorite. But that's So still... that's one issue. The other thing as well is that like the current gas infrastructure we have is made for 
um, you know, na- natural gas. Yeah. And that stuff isn't compatible with hydrogen. It will the but this is like five percent, I believe. This is what Sean and I actually fight about with hydrogen. He always says, "But the gas grid's not built for that." I'm like, yeah, "Okay, I mean, we'll produce hydrogen as in a, in, a, in a centralized way and export the energy that you produce off electrolysis into the grid." That to me seems like a no-brainer. Like you just don't don't worry about the gas. But you use energy to make hydrogen, then you're burning it to create energy again. Like you're just going in a bit of a loop there. That's all. But if you're producing it in like a, a green way, like surely you've got like enough capacity to to put that into the grid. So you just do it locally, and then you you push it into like a public public sector public grid where other people can use it. Wait, sorry. Can you explain that again? So like you got you get water right. You produce hydrogen. Yeah. With obviously, like electrolysis and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then you 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 just have a, a shit ton of hydrogen batteries that you can produce energy like locally. Well, yeah. So the what grid. they could use this for is for Dunkelflaut. The Germans always have a fucking word for stuff. Dunkelflaut. Uh, does any, <laughs> would anyone here like to explain Dunkelflaut? It's like prolonged periods of wind drought. Yes. So what we're seeing is uh, in previous modeling is you're getting like two hour batteries, uh, like electrical batteries coming into the grid, and you're looking at like eight to ten hour pumped hydro. These Dunkelflat periods, when you have such high renewables in like this, like really cold week, for example, no sun, no cloud cover, no wind, you need something to cover a week's worth of energy. And that's where hydrogen can step in. And so they yeah. could probably get a cap contract that says, look, we'll need you for two weeks a year. You need to stay, save up and put it into the sun. We'll give you a certain amount of money to do it. Because like at that point, you're paying for like expensive gas. Might as well pay a little bit cheaper for hydrogen stay online. And it's green. Yeah, and it's green, which is which is the good kind of like transition. Well, that, that's my big vision. You have like a massive battery somewhere and when there's no sun, you just use the energy that your yeah. hydrogen can produce. And I think that's mostly covered by on your daily cycle. I think your batteries and pumped hydro will do that job. It's those long periods that are like annoying the shit out of modelers because mm. there's nothing that's there unless you build heaps of gas you that never that. runs and only runs like twice a year kind of thing. That's the only way to cover it, to hit the re- re- reliability standards. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is uh, an ongoing question. We can speculate on it, but maybe we'll wrap that up and we'll talk about it another time. See you. See you. Thanks for listening. To see more Engineering Dads content like this, head to our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and I'll link below to see our other projects. Have a good one.